This passage comes from Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the Lord of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, City Church. It's good to be with you here this morning uh, as we gather together to open up God's Word. My name is David Richter, and I am the pastor here at City Church of East Nashville, and I'm so excited uh, to be with you this morning. We are going to have a little bit of a different ending uh, to the service today, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a heads up about that. Uh, Immediately after the sermon, I'm going to do communion, and then we are going to sing a song that we usually sing after the sermon And then after that, we're actually going to have an immersion baptism. Many of you don't know, but we have a secret uh, pool right back here, and we're going to open that sucker up and actually break it in this morning. Uh, So uh, we're excited about that, and there'll definitely be more of that as we kind of come along. Uh, And then immediately after the service, and this is something to remember as well, we're going to have an informational meeting, uh, which we're going to give a little bit of an update about our budget, and Hadassah is going to give a little informational update about just some of the things that are happening behind the scenes this summer with some of the transitions we're making uh, with our management platform and some of the things that go along with that. So those are all exciting things, and I hope that you'll stick around uh, to find out some more about that. But uh, at this point, we get to do something even more exciting, and that is to dive into God's Word and to see what He has to teach us today. Uh, it's, a, it's a good thing uh, that we are kind of walking through uh, the last couple of months in the book of Philippians. As we've talked about, uh, this is, we're living in a world right now that is devoid of joy in many ways, and this is a book that's all about joy. So it's a good thing for us to think about uh, how we can have real, lasting, uh, palpable joy in the midst of a very broken and, and disunified world. And it's good that we're talking about the passage that we're going to be looking at today, because the passage today is a lot about unity. And on Pentecost Sunday, that's often that's really what we were celebrating. In the Old Testament, uh, you had the Tower of Babel, uh, where the Lord comes down and He judges the people uh, for trying to build a giant tower uh, to make a name for themselves uh, and to make themselves into something that they're actually not. And so He confuses them by giving them all different languages, and it spreads them across the entire world because they can't speak to each other anymore. And after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, In the book of Acts, we see a reclaiming of that, a reunifying of that, a healing of that that happens on the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes and they all, all the people that are there speak with one tongue and one voice and that everybody who is gathered in the great festival of Pentecost in the city at that time hear the good news of the gospel together and it brings a unity and a healing that is a representation of the healing that we receive in the gospel itself. 
the brokenness that we have because of sin, the brokenness that we have because uh, of our rebellion against God is healed. Um, and it points us forward to the healing that we have and that we uh, have an opportunity to share in this world as uh, followers of Jesus Christ and our unity in him. Uh, and as a result of this, I've been thinking a lot this past week about the idea of disunity. It's, it's difficult not to think about that in our culture right now, right? Um, everything seems disunified. Uh, Western society is undergoing an immense uh, kind of cultural shift and transformation at the moment. Um, we're rapidly shifting from a more, a more uh, you could say, transition, uh, traditional society into a much more uh, kind of diverse society that has a multitude of different narratives and stories and ideas and values uh, and beliefs about what is real. Um, uh, Christianity is just one of those beliefs among an ocean of others. Um, and as a result of this, it has led us to a place of, of not having a foundation by which we can have many shared beliefs and ideas. And that's kind of tearing us apart. Um, it's tearing us apart in a number of different specific ways. You think about anthropology. We have very different views of sexuality and gender and personhood and family and marriage, right? Uh, if you think about epistemology... Uh, we have very different notions of whether transcendent knowledge and what truth is, and if it's even possible to know what's true in this world. Uh, you can think about geography. We're in the midst of a great migration that's happening. There's a lot that's being written on that right now, where people all over the country are migrating to different parts of the country to actually be closer to the people that agree with them the most, their tribes in our society, uh, their values, their ideas, their beliefs. And so people are moving to urban areas because they think that those are the people that more represent them. And other people are moving to more rural areas. And you see this mighty migrational shift that's happening within our society in that way. You also see it in communication. Uh, our access to communication and information right now is absolutely mind-boggling. When I was a kid, I could never have imagined that we would have the access that we do right now in my pocket at this very moment or on my wrist, as you might say, right? Um, but... The fact that we have this and so quickly at our fingertips has not led to the unity that we thought that we would have. It actually has led to a great sense of disunity because we no longer know how to trust what is right or no. How much of this is actually true? What is disinformation? Uh, these things are tearing us apart in many different ways. And we are left wondering how can we possibly have any kind of sense of unity in the midst of our world right now? And it's deeply discouraging. It fills me with a lot of grief. My guess is it fills you with a lot of grief as well. Uh, and studying our passage this week actually brought me a lot of hope. It was a big encouragement to me. Because Paul here is grieving over disunity as well. The disunity of the Philippian church. This was a group of people uh, who had come to know the Lord from a very wide variety of cultures and background and economic uh, kind of situations. And they had come together as one church, and it, it, it was beautiful and wonderful, but it also led to a lot of disunity, a lot of disagreements about, you know, things like what the color of the carpet should be, or the walls, or uh, how they should worship, or what kind of songs they should sing, all these kind of things that we typically think of that we kind of separate over. And even more than that. And so Paul is writing a letter to encourage them. But unlike the way that we often deal with disunity in our culture today, Paul's grief that he has over the disunity that they have in this church does not lead him to despair. It leads him to boldly proclaim the hope of the healing 
and renewal that is rooted in what he believes is the very source of what has torn us apart and the hope that we have been given in Jesus Christ in the gospel. And he believes that that is the thing that actually can bring us together and heal the wounds that we have. Now, that's a bold statement, I realize. But I want to ask you to, to walk with me through this passage this morning. And let's see if we can learn and see if we can see what this great hope that Paul proclaims is all about and how it actually might bring us to a place of knowing what unity that we can have. So let's pray before we do that, and then we'll dive in and see what the Lord has to teach us today. Most Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to open your word, uh, to be reoriented, to be transformed by your grace. And we pray, Father, that you would remember your promises, pour your spirit out upon us. Help us, Lord, to see deeply, uh, to understand, uh, to recognize both our own need, but also the wonders of your grace. And through this, Lord, that you would bind us and knit us together as your people, build us up, encourage us, and embolden us to serve you and to bring a glimpse of your kingdom and your unity into this great world. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, when I was in high school, it was a pretty significant cultural event that happened in 1991. Many of you, for some of you, I'm dating myself and you won't remember. For others of you, you will remember very well. And that is a situation that happened in L.A. Uh, in which uh, a man named Rodney King was driving his car one day. He was intoxicated, got pulled over by the police. And that led to an incredible abuse where he was beaten by the police. And the trial went on for over a year. And in the midst of 1992, when the verdict came back and they actually acquitted the police officers, despite overwhelming evidence that they had committed a wrong, uh, that they acquitted the police. And that led to an enormous riot that happened uh, at that time. And when the smoke cleared and everything kind of, uh, kind of fell out at the end, they actually had to send in the National Guard. And at that point, 2,383 people had been injured and 63 people had died over this situation. It was a great tragedy. And it created uh, quite a discussion in our culture, as you might imagine. Um, and it resulted in one of the most famous pleas for unity uh, that has happened in my generation, at least. And that is uh, a phrase that we've all come to know. Even if you are too young to remember what happened, I'm sure that you've heard the phrase, can't we all just get along, right? Can't we all just get along? And if you watch the video, it's, it's not a silly thing. He's weeping over this asking, cannot we all just get along? Um, and it's a good question, isn't it? Can't we all just get along? In the face of all the brokenness and disunity and violence and hurt that exists in our world, I often ask myself this question, and my guess is you do as well. Unfortunately, if we're honest, we have to admit that we actually do know the answer to this. But we just don't like to say it outside, out loud. Because to do so would force us to do some deep diving into our own souls, right? It would actually force us to ask some questions that are very uncomfortable. It actually forces us to look at things that we don't really want to look at oftentimes. Therefore, we often prefer to just change the channel or distract ourselves with things um, or even to make light of the situation. One of the most interesting things about this great proclamation of can't we all just get along is how it became in the late 90s a joke, right? Um, uh, the heartfelt cry of one man desiring to see unity in our culture became, you know, a thing that we laughed at oftentimes in order to distract ourselves from what was really going on so that we wouldn't have to think about it, we wouldn't have to deal with it. 
And as a result, nothing really changes, right? We're still in that same situation. We still see all kinds of brokenness. We still see all kinds of uh, horrible things that are happening around our world. Uh, I'm not going to go into all of them. All you have to do is turn on the news just to see, right? Lots of things that are going on that just are utterly gut-wrenching and how we are disunified and fractured from one another. And the question that comes out of this is, what can we do? How can we change this? How can we actually find the thing that we're deeply longing for? And what we, I want us to notice here in our passage is that Paul begins this morning by making a very similar plea for unity. He says here in verse 1, if there is any encouragement, any comfort from love, any participation, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one another, right? Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just be unified? Complete our joy by doing this. Paul doesn't stop there. He leans in, and he immediately goes on to address what he believes is actually the root of the problem of why we are actually disunified in this world. And that's what we see here in verse 3. Do nothing, he says, out of selfish ambition or conceit. Now, that's a very famous phrase. If you've been around the church or Christianity, I'm sure you've heard this passage. It's one that's quoted quite a bit um, in kind of telling our kids to try to get them to not be selfish or to, like, steal that cookie that they really wanted or something like that. We often maneuver that in that way. But if you actually really dig into the Greek and what's being said here, it's fascinating the language that Paul is using to make a very, very important point. And that is this. Uh, This word, selfish ambition in the Greek, is actually one that uh, means the idea of quarreling and strife and factionalism. It's, It's the very idea of disunity, right, that's rooted in the selfishness. The word conceit that's used here is the Greek word kenodoxia, and it comes from two different words. The first one is kenosis, which means to empty oneself. And then the second one is doxa, which means glory, which if you kind of dig into that, is this kind of idea of honor and respect and worth and identity and reputation. It's a sense of our importance. It's oftentimes what we talk about uh, if you are in a psychological field as the idea of your ego. It's the thing that fills you up. And so what we see here and what we need to understand is, according to Paul, the root of our disunity is a deep-seated glory emptiness that exists within our souls and in our egos that leads us to live incredibly selfish lives that fractures all of our relationships around us. We're glory empty, is what he says. And that is the root of our problem. You know, uh, there's a pastor in New York City, I often quote him, so I'm sure you know who he is. His name is Tim Keller, and he has a wonderful little book that I would highly recommend. It is called uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, and it's actually a quote by C.S. Lewis, and he unpacks this kind of idea from him. And it, it is actually the source of a lot of the thoughts that I have this morning on this. Um, and in this, he actually asked the question, have you ever thought about the fact that you don't notice your body until there's something really wrong with it? When we are walking around, we're not usually thinking to ourselves how fantastic our toes are feeling or how brilliantly our elbows are working that day, right? The only time that we think about it is if there's been something previously wrong with a body part 
and therefore it draws attention to the fact that it's actually working better than it should. That is because our body parts, um, the parts of our body only draw attention to themselves when there actually is something wrong. And the same is true of our egos. C.S. Lewis says, the reason our egos often hurt is because there is something incredibly wrong with them. They never seem happy. They're always drawing attention to themselves. They're always making us think about how we look and how we're treated, how other people think about us. People sometimes say that their feelings are hurt, but that's actually not true. Your feelings don't get hurt in that way. It's your egos that get hurt, our sense of self and our identities. But why? Well, according to Paul, it's because our egos are empty. They're glory empty. There's a vast emptiness at the center of every human ego that is constantly crying out in pain to be filled in a way that we are desperately, with every ounce of our being and every aspect of our lives, trying to satiate. If you ask the question, what is the reason that most crime and violence and abuse and cruelty and addiction and division exist in our world, the answer you will often get from people is that our culture has low self-esteem, right? So it's a kind of a, it makes kind of sense to us that we would be, kind of our egos would be damaged in this way, that we uh, are empty in this particular way. It's oftentimes the way that we try to think about it. It's because at the core, people have a low view of themselves, we are told. They're insecure. Why do bullies beat up kids on the playground, right? Every movie that you've seen within the last 20 years will tell you that it's because they have an insecurity problem. Why do husbands abuse their wives? Why do politicians lie and inflate their accomplishments? It's an attempt to fill the cosmic void of insecurity that exists within them and to prove their worth, not only to themselves, but to the world around them. And to be honest, this is a very attractive view, isn't it? Because if we hold this view, we don't have to actually make any judgments about people at the core to deal with the problems that we see in our society. All we have to do is support people and build them up and help them to find ways to fill or to complete the insecurity that exists within their hearts and egos. And this support almost always takes uh, the kind of the course of a couple of different approaches. And I wanna look at these approaches today because I think it's really helpful for us to think through how we oftentimes try to fill this void within us. And the first one is this, we look to other people to try to fill that void. We dedicate our lives to winning the approval of others, to getting others to acknowledge us and to tell us that we're special and valuable and worth more than, than we often think and important and that our lives are significant and meaningful. Some of you know this approach all too well. You've spent most of your lives trying to gain the approval of your parents or that group of friends that you desperately long to be a part of or a family member other than that, or you've worked really, really hard at work to impress your boss and the people around you so that you will be seen as someone who's important and valuable and, and someone who is necessary for uh, whatever it is that you do so that you can get promoted and actually have more glory, right? And the truth is it feels really good, doesn't it, when we get... Uh, acknowledged in this way, when people respond to us in this way, when they recognize us and praise us in this way. It's intoxicating to be told by others that we're special and that we are important and that we're good at what we do. 
It fills us up. It fills us up. Unfortunately, it never seems to last. It's like a balloon with a hole in it. Every time you fill it up, it slowly starts to leak away until it's gone. And then you fill it up again, and it slowly starts to leak away until it's gone. You know, uh, I think it was three years ago, um, uh, in our denomination, we have this thing called General Assembly, where we go and all of the leaders meet once a year and gather together, and there's thousands of people that come out, and we discuss kind of church business and kind of things that are going on and make decisions about certain things. And a couple of years ago, I was invited to actually be a part of a panel discussion that happened in front of the entire assembly. It was uh, me and the, the former president of our denominational seminary, who's also the current, what we call the stated clerk of the denomination, kind of the managerial uh, guy who oversees everything, a uh, very famous theologian, and the current moderator of our general assembly, who was the first African-American moderator of the PCA. Um, it was an incredible honor to be able to be with them and to be a part of this panel. Uh, and I can tell you that it made me feel really special and really important, right? It filled me up. Uh, I would have denied it because, of course, as a pastor, you've got to do that kind of stuff, right? That's the, that's the, that's the, uh, the great irony of being at something where there's a bunch of, uh, a big gathering of pastors. It's kind of like going back to high school. You all feel insecure about how big your church is and how successful you are, but nobody can say it because we have to be humble about it, right? But it filled me up. It made me feel really good. It made me feel really important in that way. But that very night, uh, I went to dinner uh, with a couple of friends of mine, and I actually was, uh, got there before everybody else got there, and I actually had to sit by myself uh, for about a 15-minute time period. Now, that's not a very long time period, uh, but I was actually sitting there by myself. Um, and uh, as I was sitting there by myself, and during this short amount of time, I started to feel super anxious. And I started to feel lonely and self-conscious. And it was totally irrational. Totally irrational. But I could feel my ego deflating in that very moment. And the irony is, and I'm guessing that the irony is for all of you as well, when you felt this very same way, because we all feel this way, don't we, at some point. That the more that we inflate our egos on the approval of others, the more it stretches. And the more it stretches, the bigger that hole becomes. And the bigger that hole becomes, the quicker it deflates. And the quicker it deflates, the more insecure and the more anxious, the more fearful and glory-hungry we actually become. I don't need to go into a bunch of illustrations about this for you guys. I know that you know this. I know that you've seen it in your own lives, in the lives of others. You've felt it in your life. And if we're honest, we all know that this is the way that things work. We all know that filling our egos with the approval of others never ultimately works. It just turns us into something that actually craves the glory that we are missing even more. And as a result, this has led many people in our culture to embrace an actual second approach to this, not just seeking the approval of others in order to fill this void, but also looking to ourselves and looking inside ourselves. And this is becoming more and more kind of philosophically the most popular approach to do this. Uh, how do you know what's true? How do you know uh, that you're worth something? Uh, you don't look outside of yourself. You look into yourself. You find it inside of yourself. It's called expressive individualism. 
Um, and I often point it out because it's, it's becoming one of the most common things in our culture today in, in kind of trying to explain who we are and how we find worth and value. Um, and in this, you have to ask yourself, how many times have you heard someone in our culture say that the key to actually having self-worth or self-esteem is not caring about what other people think about you? Uh, you shouldn't worry about what other people say, we're told. You shouldn't live according to other people's standards or values or beliefs because at the end of the day, the only thing that truly matters is what you think about yourself, what you believe, how you know how great you are, right? You know your life has significance and value. Therefore, you're the only one qualified to choose your own standards and your own beliefs, and you're the only one qualified to make true judgments about yourself. We're told this all the time, right? Now, again, this approach sounds really good. And it can actually buffer us at times from kind of being hurt by other people around us. It's true. It can feel good at times, and it can make us feel strong, and uh, it can make us feel important at times, uh, even in the midst of criticism. In fact, it's a way for us to kind of deflect criticism and justify ourselves in the midst of a moment. But here's the problem. Have you ever noticed what happens to a person when they really stop caring what other people think and start spending all of their time inflating their own egos? They become incredibly selfish and narcissistic and prideful. And as C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity, pride always leads to comparison. And this is interesting. You should listen to this. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than other people around them. If everyone else became equally as rich or clever or good-looking as I am, there would be nothing to be proud about in this world. It is the comparison that makes you proud, your pleasure of being above the rest. And he goes on to argue that this is really kind of the core of why we have such disunity around us, uh, why we look down on people that are poorer than us, how, why poorer people look down on people who are richer than them, why we have racial issues, why we have cultural issues, that we constantly are looking for someone in order to think of ourselves as better than, in order to fill that void that exists within our egos. And that's exactly what happens. And many of you know this very well. You know what Lewis is talking about in this situation. Dedicated your lives to the belief that the key to having highest self-esteem is actually uh, looking in yourself. Therefore, you've spent an enormous amount of time and effort and work uh, on self-actualization, on trying to work to kind of build yourself up, of thinking about yourself better, uh, thinking yourself as significant and special in this world. And, you know, I, I don't want to poo-poo all of that. I, you know, I do think that there are good things that come along with that. But we, when you make that the source of your hope in this world, it becomes very problematic. And it leads to a question. What happens when you look on the inside, when you look inside of yourself and you can never quite come to a place of liking what you see. What happens when no matter how hard you try, you just cannot silence that little voice inside of your head that keeps telling you that you're not special, that you are not significant, 
that you are not good. Which in turn leads you to constantly be looking for other people that you can then compare yourself to and judge for not being as special and insignificant as you are. And the cycle starts all over again. And as a result, your life is constantly vacillating between self-confidence and self-doubt, between independence and between slavery, between feelings of strength and a bottomless pit of anxiety. If you read anything that's being written right now, that is a description of how most of our society is. We are constantly caught in this cycle, and we are being eaten alive by it. And it's killing us. And it's killing our relationships with each other. Sound familiar? According to the Bible, the reason that neither of these approaches will ever significantly work in our lives is because the solution to our problem isn't finding a way to inflate our egos uh, by finding higher self-esteem or higher self-actualization in this world. The solution, according to Paul here in verse 5, is something that's actually quite shocking. It's humility. Humility, he says, is the answer to this problem. It's the practice of counting others as more significant than ourselves and looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, that makes a lot of sense, right? If you uh, think about that, uh, that's something that very few people would disagree with in our culture today. Um, because despite all of the emphasis on the culture on self-help and self-actualization, most of us still believe that our world would be a much better place if we would just treat people with kindness, right? You, uh, my, my wife would love that, I'm sure. I don't know where she's at. There you go. Uh, if you just treat people with kindness, if you would just uh, look at the interests of others instead of just yourself, if you would just give of yourself in that way, that everything would be okay and would work out. Um, but the question is, how do we actually become humble like that? We constantly are making these proclamations. We need to be kind. We need to be generous. We need to do all of these things. But how do you actually become that? And the cultural answer is this, that you need to have a low self-esteem, oftentimes. You need to start by thinking less of yourself. You need to avoid attention and praise. You need uh, to be self-deprecating in every situation. You need to beat yourself up and deny yourself your pleasures and dedicate yourself to life of sacrifice and service. And that sounds really good, oftentimes, in the front end. But here's the problem. Have you ever noticed the fact that anytime you start trying to be humble, it becomes actually impossible to be humble? I'm gonna say that again. Have you ever noticed the fact that anytime you try to start working on being humble in your own life, that you actually find that you're not being humble in that moment. And there's a reason for this. Because as soon as you start thinking about it and trying to get it, you immediately start thinking about yourself instead of others. And you start thinking about how humble you are in that particular situation. Or how other people are perceiving you as being humble. Right? Which, of course, is not humility at all. It's just pride. And as a result... Whoever you try, whenever you try to work on being humble, you never actually become humble. You just end up working on the appearance of humility instead of real humility itself. But if this is true, then the question is, how can we actually move past this to have the humility that we want? And the Bible has an answer for this too. 
The reason we can never be humble by working on it directly is because humility is not a result of something that we do. It is not a result of something that we do. It's a byproduct of setting our minds on something other than ourselves. It's exactly what Paul says here in this passage. It is not high self-esteem, and it's not low self-esteem. It's self-forgetfulness as a result of setting your mind on something outside of yourself. This is why as soon as you start thinking about humility, we lose it, because thinking about it causes us to focus our minds on ourselves, as I said, which immediately leads us to be proud or insecure. And C.S. Lewis responds to this, and he says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself or thinking more of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not noticing yourself because you're not glory-hungry anymore. It's not always being worried about how you are looking or what other people think or even what you think in a particular situation. It's not being down on yourself. It's not being up on yourself. It's just simply forgetting yourself. If you were ever to meet a truly humble person in this world, they would be wouldn't be constantly beating up on themselves or trying to promote themselves. In fact, they wouldn't be talking about themselves or thinking about themselves at all. They would be completely and totally focused on you, your needs, your desires, your interests in this world. Can you imagine what it would look like to be free from constantly thinking about how other people are perceiving you or how you look or how you're performing or what other people are saying about you in a situation, or that awful voice inside your head that's always telling you that you need to be better, or you're not good enough, or you're not worthy enough, or lovable enough in this world. Can you imagine how healing and unifying it would be if we could actually have this kind of humility in our lives? According to Paul, the only way to get this humility is to focus our minds on something outside of ourselves. And it's not just a general something. He has something very specific in mind. He says that we must focus our minds on Jesus Christ. Verse 5, he says, Have this mind, this unity among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to give us a hymn. This is actually a hymn that the early church used to sing in which it unpacks who Jesus is and what he has come to do in this world. And in verse 6, this is what he does. Jesus Christ, he says, who is God himself who has come into this world, the very source of all glory that exists in the world, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. And the question is, what did he empty himself of, right? Was it his divinity? No. If you believe that, then that is uh, a third century heresy. You probably should know that, right? So uh, we can talk about that if you'd like, but that is not what the Bible says. He didn't empty himself of his divinity at all. What he emptied it himself of was his glory. He didn't give up being God. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born a man in this world. Incredible humility. But that's not all. Then he humbled himself even more, we're told, by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the reason that Paul emphasizes even death on the cross is because there was no more humiliating way to die in that culture than being crucified. Unbelievable humility. And the question is, why did he do it? Because he was more concerned with your interests and your needs and your desires 
than he was for his own. So he laid down his own life so that you and I might be saved and forgiven and reunited to him and his glory. Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, humbled himself for you. He became a man for you. He suffered for you, and ultimately he died for you so that you could know what it means to be filled with his glory. Jesus emptied himself of his glory so that you might know what it is to be filled in him, so that your deep insecurities might be healed, so that the places deep inside where you feel the most unknowable, the most unlovable, the most unforgivable might actually be filled with the knowledge of his love. And as a result, Paul says that when we see what he has done, God will so highly exalt him in our hearts and minds that his name will be lifted above every name. He will be the only thing that we would be able to look to outside of ourselves. And we will no longer care what other people think about us or what even we think about us. We will only care about what he thinks in this world. We no longer focus on ourselves because our egos are filled with his love. We will become self-forgetful and humble and focused on his glory, not our own, and on pursuing his interests, not our own interests. Can you imagine what that would look like in our church and in our world? It would heal our disunity. According to Paul, there can be no unity without humility, and our humility, our unity with one another can only flow out of our unity that we have in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what our church would be like if we began to live out and embody this? We would become a true community of healing in life, which we begin to reflect a little bit, but more and more we would be able to see that in our lives and world. And what we would begin to recognize is that we not only are given this as a great gift of his grace, but we are actually invited into the process, into the great rescue mission of God to bring this unity into our world. When you go to work, when you're at home with your family, when you're visiting people, when you're at the grocery store, the self-forgetful humility that we have been given in the gospel actually transforms our lives so that it spills up. It doesn't even just fill us up. It actually spills up over us into the world around us, and it begins to impact all of those around us and bring a little glimpse of the healing that comes in the gospel into our neighborhood and into our lives of the people around us. God doesn't need us to do that, but he gives us the incredible gift of being able to participate in that. Isn't that glorious? All of the brokenness of our world, all the disunity that we see in the world, it becomes, it seems overwhelming that we could possibly do anything to impact that, but we don't have to. We have a God who is moving to do those things in our lives and in our world. And he promises that one day he will return to make all things right. And until that day, we get to bring that picture to the world. We get to bring that unity to people around us. And we get to recognize and participate in the glory of our God as his kingdom is brought to bear. That is a glorious purpose. It's a glorious hope that we have. And let's pray now that the Lord would actually do this in our midst. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's hard sometimes and it, it, it shows us things that are difficult, 
um, and that we don't like to hear, but Lord, we all know that we need to look into these things. The solution is not to just distract ourselves or to move on. Lord, what a gift it is that you shine that light on us and draw us to a place of recognizing. And I pray, Father, that this passage would help us, Lord, to bring us to a place of humility and repentance and faith in you. And that through that, Lord, that you would begin to, to work in our hearts and minds and transform us, to knit us together as your people, um, to bring the unity that can only be found in your gospel into the life of our community. And that through that filling, Lord, that it would spill out into our neighborhoods and homes, to grocery stores and car dealerships and everything else that exists within our neighborhood. And Lord, that a little glimpse of your kingdom will be brought to bear until that day when you come again and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that you are Lord and that we shall celebrate with you for all eternity the unity of the gospel. Please move, Lord. We need you. We ask that you would do this here and now for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.